0: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from the Lens, New Orleans' 1st nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, state law does not require charter schools to provide gifted and talented education, but a group is asking the NOLA Public Schools District to expand the offerings. And a remembrance for a beloved member of the community in New Orleans, musician Jeffrey Hills Sr. Those stories, insight and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. And reporter Katie Rechdahl. Hi, Katie. Hey, Carolyn. Marta, first up with you in schools gifted education advocates are asking the Orleans Parish School Board to consider universal screening for gifted students and hiring a gifted services coordinator, among other requests for expanding the services in the all charter NOLA Public Schools District. Tell us how the system works now and what they're asking for as far as changes.
1: Yeah, so there's a, a group of um, advocates for gifted education, both um, you know, teachers and parents and other folks who would like to see those services expanded, uh, who have gone to the board and asked um, for the board to kind of be pressi- pressuring charters a little bit to expand those services. So the way that we're set up now is that all traditional schools in Louisiana are required to provide gifted services if a student, uh, you know, tests for gifted or talented services. But when charter school laws were passed in the state, uh, um, charters were exempt from providing those services. They are required to provide special education, but gifted was sort of put under, you know, a different bucket. Hmm. So they're not required to provide gifted services. And, you know, this is where you get this perfect line from board member Carlos Servagon, who basically said at a meeting, last month you know this is what where we end up with a donut hole in our education system right probably when these laws were passed no one was envisioning an all charter district where you now have no school that's you know essentially re- required to provide these services that's not to say there aren't some schools that do provide
0: the services.
1: It's just, you know, a very confusing environment for a parent who would want to advocate for those services.
0: Mm. Do they tout th- those that do offer GNT education or additional services? Do they do those tout to the community that yes, this and this is what we do? Do they use it as a you know an advert?
1: I, I do think the schools, there are a handful of selective admission schools that you know tout that they provide gifted services. And on the other hand, there's several schools that tout their, um, you know, their their talented program their music and their arts and stuff like that. But as far as additional gifted services at kind of a standard elementary school, I don't think you see a lot of information on that. And I think that's kind of where we see a, a lot of gaps and uh, perhaps frustration for, you know, just the general population of parent who wants to know, does the school down the street for me provide gifted education, Um, You know, that's something that board member Nolan Marshall brought up. He said his granddaughter went to a C-rated school that had great gifted education services and that if there were, you know, if it was more easy to identify these schools that do provide those services that, you know, maybe more people would stick at their schools close to home.
0: Do the tests that, that would identify someone as gifted and talented, are those, do they have to be created out of whole cloth or are those something that... That the uh, that the system could just get somehow that are standardized mm-hmm. standardized tests.
1: Sure. So they're, they're they're a standardized evaluation, but they do or they can cost money, right? So either you get the district to provide to to administer that test for you, you get convinced the school to administer the test for you, and I've seen schools um, hesitate to do that because of the cost, mm-hmm. um, or you have it privately done, which is going to cost money out of your own pocket. So you know, that's where these advocates are saying a a universal screening would be really beneficial um, because it could kind of catch those kids who Mm. might not have an advocate in their corner asking for that test to be given to them.
0: And how is the idea received so far? Um, Generally speaking, all board members uh,
1: seem to be really interested in it. Um, I think, You know, the problem that we run into here is that this is a decentralized district. So there's only so much the board can do. At this point in time, you know, the board could create a new policy that says all second graders are tested for gifted or all all second graders in the top 10 percent of their, you know, reading and their classes are tested for gifted. But we have basically zero students that are attending schools under the district's policies right now, right? They all attend their own charters with their own policies. So until new contracts were written or signed with these charter groups, though any policy that the board would um, adopt would not take effect. right
2: Are Louisiana standards for gifted and talented the same as elsewhere, or like because I know our standards have really it feels to me anyway, and maybe I'm wrong, but Marty, you probably know that I feel like we are allowing lower standards for certain things, especially since COVID in schools, and so is there, is the gifted and talented bar the same or that has that also dipped? You know, I don't know the specific answer to that, Katie. It's a
1: really good question. Um, but what I do know, and one thing that uh, this uh, group was arguing for was to use localized standards, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, she suggests, this woman, Julia, Dr. Julia Miller with Loyola, where she uh, teaches teachers. Um, had been a classroom teacher for 15 years, big proponent of gifted services. And what she was saying is, you know, if we're, if we only test the top 10% of kids in X, Y, and Z for gifted services, if we're taking that top 10% out of a national kind of norm or a national curve, that's going to significantly reduce the number of students that are eligible. But, you know, there is a top 10% of kids in every single classroom, right, compared to their peers. So she really wants to see the district push for localized norming, which would, you know, help get more kids into those gifted services and, you know, ensure, and, and especially even if you're only in, even if you're only, I don't want to say that lightly, but in the top 10%, um, you know, compared to your peers, that means you might need more challenging material than who you're sitting in the classroom right, with, right? To to both keep your attention span, to keep you interested in learning um, and to you know, be giving you new challenges. Um, she was really pushing for localized, um,
0: that localized norming versus using national scales. Did this group suggest how many kids might be missing out on on this extra attention or or different curriculum and what that what the costs are long term for that? And I no, don't. Mean, they didn't
1: specifically. Oh, sorry.
0: <laughs> no, I just don't. I don't mean um, the the financial costs. What I mean is the the education. I mean,
1: education wise, they, they will be the first ones to tell you that kids who are uh, eligible for and receive gifted education are more likely to take on leadership roles. They're more likely to stay involved in school. They're more likely to go to college. You know, she was running through all those statistics. Um, and then just generally speaking, um, you know, keeping them involved and interested in the classroom. Um, and, you know, I think what uh, Miller would argue for it is that you know, just like I said, that there is a top 10% of kids in every single classroom. Right. So not necessarily that all those kids are going to be in gifted, but that they should at least be screened or evaluated for it.
0: And what about how many there might be?
1: Um, you know, that that's really going to vary from school to school. But what I can tell you is that across our district, um, we see some schools like, you know, Ben Franklin, Willow with kids with populations up where, you know, 25, 30% of the students receiving gifted services are eligible for them, gifted and talented services. And at dozens of schools in the city, it's less than 5% of their students. So, you know, that to me tells me that I don't, we're not even screening at that point, I don't think.
0: And what do what do programs like this cost? How What will this add to their overall budget? I know that's difficult to answer, but in general, is there any idea of how much this expands their they're not every year
1: you know I don't know the exact cost of providing those extra services and I know that um, that differs a lot based on what you're providing you know some people use some schools use a simpler like computer program kind of techniques but if you're using you know pull out education with additional teachers obviously that would be a, a, a lot of a greater cost um, but, you know, that does come with, if you do have students who identify as gifted, they're going to come with an extra, I believe it's 800 some dollars um, a year for that programming. So mm-hmm. that's probably not going to cover all of your costs, but right. those identified students do come with extra money. And, you know, even if charter schools aren't receiving or even if charter schools aren't providing that gifted services right now, but a student is identified as gifted, they're coming
2: with that money. So so that is state money, the 800 Yep. That's in the, the state funding formula. Interesting. It just feels like we do everything by adding a computer program here, right? It'd be interesting to see what each school does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, what um, Dr. Miller was one thing she's arguing for on the get-go is like, let's just get at least at the bare minimum, a centralized catalog of what schools are offering so that parents know, because, you know, we claim to be a system of choice, but if you're choosing a school for your kid and you don't even know if they offer gifted services, you know, what kind of starting point is that? And right now to know who offers it, you literally have to go to
0: every single school and ask them that question. Wow. And this all happens with the backdrop of a national report that came out this week that suggested that kids nationwide have not just slipped in math, in history, and language and everything that, that the first one that suggested that the pandemic had had really um, hurt children's education and their um, their test scores had declined so dramatically. But now there's more evidence of that happening nationwide in in every area, basically.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we're going to be crawling out of those uh, academic holes for a long time. You know, we had we lost some critical years in time, especially with early learners and early reading um, skills, because, you know, you need that reading foundation to move into to learning in any other subject, essentially. Right. Right.
0: So, Marta, what's what happens next with this
1: request? I think as far as this advocacy group goes, what they'd like to see is just more conversation around it, um, Maybe see the school board takes some move, makes some moves, um, potentially hire a, a gifted coordinator to provide support, um, you know, for schools and parents as they as they navigate this process. Um, and then, you know, what the we at the lens are going to look at doing is, um, you know, get some resources there for parents who want to understand how to get your your kid tested for gifted and you know what um, what services should be
0: available to you if they do qualify. So, um, I'm working on putting that stuff together right now. Great. So, when you say that, are you suggesting that, that parents could just, without the school, go ahead and get their child tested, independent of the school?
1: You can request it, and I'm not sure if school, if there's any sort of tier that's required to initiate the testing, but, you know, essentially, for, I think this is right, for most, you know, testing, special education testing, you, you just request that and the school is obliged to perform such a test. You know, another thing this group is talking about is, uh, you know, unless gifted services are showing up in charter contracts or the charter school accountability framework, you know, where is that? Where are they actually going to fall? So that that was another thing that group is advocating for. Mm. I mean, I think it's one of several donut holes in our education system. When you get when you get this decentralized, that's just the nature of it. I've seen in the last decade a re-centralizing of certain things, right, where they've re-centralized the admissions process. They re-centralized discipline processes. So, you know, I think there's there's some potential for that here. Um, I don't mm. know how quickly that would happen or how acute of a need um, people would see it based, you know, in, in comparison, I think, to other needs. But re-centralization is something we've seen um, where schools are falling short on things, so...
0: All right. Well, Marta, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are education reporter Marta Jusen and reporter Katie Repdahl. Hi, I'm Ann Muller, Chief Operating Officer at The Lens. The Lens is the New Orleans area's first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom dedicated to unique investigative and explanatory journalism. We have a diverse set of financial supporters, including major national foundations, local foundations, and dedicated readers in the New Orleans area. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at theLensNola.org slash donate. Thank you. Katie, um, first off, I'm sorry for your loss. You had a, a big a big loss. The community did. Tuba player Jeffrey Hill Sr. Okay. was laid to rest last week. You wrote a really beautiful and moving um, eulogy, a requiem for him. It's on our website, thelensnola.org. Will you tell us about him?
2: Yeah. Um, he was just such a solid, solid guy, and he had a heart attack at age 47. So... Um, some sense that maybe he'd had something going on that he didn't know, but he was just, I think he was just strong in a way that he thought he would be okay, you know? So they had a funeral for him on Saturday and it was filled with tuba players mm. um, along with a lot of other musicians. He was very good friends with um, Trombone Shorty growing up, they grew up together. So he was there. Glenn David Andrews. Walk, I have video of him walking alongside Jeffrey's uh, casket as as it's heading up, you know, being drawn by a pair of um, big black horses mm. along Claiborne Avenue. So um, there's something about the the way in which musicians are protective of another musician who's who's gone away in a way that is so stunningly beautiful to me like the idea that you're playing your horn to him in the casket and you're and as they're lifting his casket into the van to take him to to his final resting place like that everyone's helping to lift it and turn it around and give him one last look of where he came from and then put him in there It's, it's powerful
0: how did you come to know him
2: he, um, I, I mean, I, you know, I um, I covered musicians and I dated a musician. At one point, I have a son with a musician. And um, we were together for a long time. So there were a lot of musicians coming in and out of our house. And, um, and Jeffrey was one of those. So that's how I got to know him. Then I got to know him better when uh, we were all... We ended up flying from the flooded city to a place with no water at all, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. Mm. And we were all displaced there for um, about a year. Um, His family, his wife, Anne, and three children, and uh, my son, his dad, and I were there. And we were sponsored by a church that stepped forward and sponsored us. So they would play their horns Sundays at the service and we would, Ann is a great cook. I'm not. So Ann would cook, Jeffrey would cook and he would, you know, I was trying to work there. I was doing stuff, a little reporting. And so they would care for Hector while I was out doing my thing. It was like a f- big family. And when when I drove back to New Orleans, without Hector's dad, we drove back without him cause he stayed behind, but, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, the storm brought out a lot of tension, right? So we I drove back with uh, Jeff the Hills family back to along through the mountains and through Texas, which, as you know, is a lot of days, and yeah. then into Louisiana. So I've known, you know, I've known him well for a long time. Then his his family got off the exit as we got toward Dallas and we kept going to New Orleans. Then he commuted His family stayed in Dallas because the schools were actually working there. You know, they weren't really working here. Um, So he would sleep on our futon in the front room and weekends and then drive back during the week to go be with his family. So, I mean, it's just, he's like family, family, really.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The way you describe you living in... Phoenix, of all places. Um, having, you know, spent a lot of time in the southwest United States, um, it's pretty different. I can imagine that how profound it must have been to hear the sounds of New Orleans while you're sitting in the desert southwest and what the what the
2: pull? What it felt like to to want to go back? I mean, Hector hadn't felt the raindrop on his head. It was a drought until we moved back to New Orleans. Mm. So, like, um, and that air—you know—the the air here—it's it, just a whole different thing. So it was the sounds of New Orleans in the middle of the mountains with the, the those cliffs that they have. In Phoenix, it was like we were in outer space playing yeah. jazz. You know, yeah. it's like this whole weird experience. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, there there are there's a black community in Phoenix, and we soon found it. Right. Um, that's where everybody got their hair cut at a barber there, and there were <laughs> you know there you just have to find certain things a hair shop like. If you're going to get um, a hair to put braids in your head, you have to have certain things. And so we found places where people, you know, where you could feel sort of a sense of home a little bit. But Phoenix is very, you know, Latino run. Like, it's very much a Latino city and also old people. Like when I when when I first walked to the nearest drugstore and asked for I looked around, I said, oh, I'm looking for diapers. And they said, oh, for babies. <laughs> we don't have those. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't have them Scottsdale, Arizona. Right. Sun City. <laughs> I know. Oh, my so gosh. It's old people. Oh, yeah. It's old people.
0: So Jeffrey a- made it back. As far as Texas, and then would come to New Orleans and c- commute on the weekends to play. When did he finally
2: make it back as a resident? Uh, I think it was. I think he did that for about six months, maybe. Maybe it was nine. I'm trying to remember, because his oldest, Leanne, came back and graduated from Douglas. So, but it was it was a significant amount of time. It felt like a long time. You know, that's a long commute, Dallas does and here, does and here. Yeah. Um, and you know, I sometimes I wonder about I think we're now we're looking at the pandemic and wondering what the effects are. But on, honestly, like people our bodies and our emotional states here have been through this major moment of being we were in Phoenix where we really knew nobody we were starting over, right? And the kids knew nobody and all of that. And then you go, then they move to another school and then they come back. And now um, uh, it just feels like the pandemic is just like another blow to this town. And I think we know kind of what the effects might be from Katrina, right? So that's what I think um, it kind of connects with what Marta was saying about schools right we just the pandemic and and katrina we already know what a major disaster feels like and i think that we can ask questions about would we be bearing as many musicians or as many adults at a younger age if we didn't have katrina i don't know like i think it was really hard on people just think jeffrey's driving eight extra hours um one way so 16. right right 16 hours back and forth every week, you know, that right. on after playing a gig, right? Oh, that's unbelievable, yeah. Well, you know, playing the tuba is taxing right. to your lungs right. and your heart and all that. So, like, if he had been in, in serious shape, I mean, he was having some trouble catching his breath, but he was still playing his tuba, so that tells you that he was in he was still functioning at a pretty high level you cannot play that tuba the way he played that tuba with if you are if you don't have a certain amount of breath in your body right 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 you know um the thing that I think I really take away from it is um I wrote about this in the piece too he was such a careful person especially his children were his prized possession like oh my god like he was so proud to be their daddy, right? And for him, if any of us had been gasping for breath, he would have had us in the hospital in two seconds, like at urgent care, at whatever you know, late night hospital ER we needed to go to, we would have been there. But I think he was so careful in so many ways, except I think he just didn't take care of himself in the same kind of way. And I think it's a good lesson, right? It's a good lesson that um, we just have to watch out for those strong, the strong ones in our family and just make sure that they're, that they're okay too, you know? Yeah.
0: Well, again, I'm really sorry for your personal loss and the city. Another punch to the gut, Right.
2: Right. I mean, If I remember solos he could take, he could play the most melodic solo on that tuba that you just can't even believe that a tuba player can really get that just unbelievable feeling and bass line, but also melody line in it that you don't find tuba players that can do that. That's a rarity. And he learned that from Tuba Fats, Anthony Tuba Fats-Layson. And um, so he his virtuosity on the horn will be missed as well as his virtuosity as a human.
0: Mm, Well said. Thank you for that.
2: I remember him, like, scurrying across the kitchen, like, to turn the pot handles inside so that the babies wouldn't be grabbing at them. Like, he was so careful. Only person I knew who would wash his hands before he picked up a baby. Like, he was so careful with children and with people in general and to have him die of something that you think is avoidable a heart attack it's just heart-wrenching yeah it breaks my
0: heart yeah oh i'm so sorry thanks for your sorry. memories here all right you guys well we're gonna end on that sad note all
1: right
2: i'll i'll see you guys
0: later all okay right, see Marta.
2: You. thank you all right thank you all, all right, right. thanks a lot bye, bye you guys
0: This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, education reporter Marta Jusin and reporter Katie Rechdahl. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. This week, we're closing out the show with Wonderful World, recorded by trumpeter Kid Murr, with a tuba solo by Jeffrey Hills. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.
2: Yes, because of the
0: rainbow
2: spreading in the sky Also on the station Of the people passing by. I see friends shaking hands how do
0: you do? they I love you. I be crying. i watched you grow old. the I live alone. i much to think to myself.
2: What a wonder!
0: Yes, I think to my...